Hey, Rob. Good to see you tonight. <laughs> I'm assuming since you're up there, we have slides. Definitely. Good. Thank you. Well, good to see you all tonight. Trust you're having a good week. Lori, welcome back to uh, American Soil. Okay, well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to uh, 1 Timothy. Thanks, Albert, for playing tonight. <clears throat> okay, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We want to look at verses 12 through 16 tonight. Jesus came to save sinners. That's why he came. You already knew that, didn't you? It's not news to you. Uh, Okay, let's pray and then we'll get into our study. Lord, again, we thank you for the beautiful day that you've blessed us with. Uh, Lord, the blessings of this day. You're a good God and we thank you for your your many blessings, your kindness to us. Thank you that we could assemble in Jesus' name. Pray that you would bless the Awana ministry, youth group, everything happening tonight. Uh, May it uh, bring glory to you and uh, give the leaders wisdom and May the word of God go forth with power. Everyone hearing the word, may, may the Holy Spirit have his way in our lives. So we commit our study to you now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, we are in 1 Timothy. And uh, note, uh, to start with, our first slide, we got the, the uh, theme uh, is, whoops, I guess I want to go back here to this. Here we go. The theme is church order. And uh, then we got past the greeting. We're in that first section, Commands to Timothy regarding doctrine and practice. And uh, Timothy uh, is being exhorted on a number of fronts here. But uh, we note the background here is uh, Paul planted a church at Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Spent more time there than any place else. Three years he spent there. So he made a major investment. It's about 10 years later. And, uh, you know, the church uh, is established... We think there's elders in place here. Uh, We know there is. But uh, there's some teaching that's going on that is a concern to Paul. And he is telling Timothy, you make sure that you charge that those on the scene who are doing the teaching don't teach anything else other than sound doctrine. And so he has a concern about that. Uh, Verse 3, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And he's talking about that which lines up with Uh, The doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of grace, as taught in the New Testament. And uh, he has a concern that there are some on the scene who are wanting, as he say in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law. So they want to bring the law into it. Not only emphasizing grace, but now trying to uh, intertwine law in the mix. And whenever you have law and grace, uh, that doesn't mix. I mean, you're either going to go to a law system or you're going to hold to a, a, a grace system. And so he has a concern about this. Now he quickly qualifies in verse 8 saying, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Okay, it's good if you use it lawfully. How do you use it lawfully? You can use it awfully and you can use it lawfully. Yes, it is a question. How do you use it lawfully? That's right. So it exposes sin. That's a lawful use of the law. Uh, Paul agrees with that as we see in Romans chapter 3. By the law is a knowledge of sin. The gospel, on the other hand, uh, also uh, lines up with exposing sin. 
the person of Christ is the ultimate model, and uh, that which doesn't line up with Christ is wrong. And so on the one hand, the mirror uh, is the law. It does reveal our sin, but so does the perfect uh, uh, example, the perfect model of Christ as well. So, so he says there, as we concluded in verse 10, uh, according to the... Uh, if there's any... End of verse 10. If there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the, the... Really, more literally, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And again, Christ is the ultimate emulation of the, of the glory of God. And so if it doesn't line up uh, with that, then it is not to be taught. But notice he says there at the end of that, that verse, uh, verse 11 which was committed to my trust. So he, he now segues to the gospel, which was committed uh, to his trust. And he now wants to talk about that. Um, the difference between the, the law and the gospel is the law exposes our, our problem, but it doesn't solve it. The gospel provides the answer uh, to our problem. And uh, so, but having mentioned uh, the gospel... He's now going to build on this a little bit as we get into verses 12 through 16. Somebody want to read verse 12 for us? Who wants to read verse 12? Yes, Anita. Okay, thank you. So uh, he begins with the mention of the gospel. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Uh, the gospel was entrusted to him, as uh, was committed to him, as we saw there, uh, committed to my trust at the end of verse 11. And so he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, of course, Christ means anointed one. Uh, is Christ an Old Testament or a New Testament word? It's a trick question. But is it an Old Testament word or a New Testament word? <clears throat> Right. So it's, it, that's right. That's exactly right. Messiah is the Old Testament. Christ is the New Testament. So it is, Christ is a New Testament word, but it's really grounded in the Old Testament. Uh, that's really what I want to emphasize. Uh, it, it doesn't uh, come, it's not a new concept coming to the New Testament. It's rooted in the Old Testament. And it really is the idea, it literally means anointed one. It's really the idea of the chosen one, the special one, the unique one who is uh, prophesied in the Old Testament, who would be this coming deliverer, this coming ruling one, this special one. And so I thank Christ Jesus. Jesus means uh, Yahweh is salvation. Uh, Literally, God's Savior is the idea. Uh, Our Lord. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord means master. Used of the risen Christ always refers to him as sovereign master, God master. And for us as believers, uh, he is our Lord. First uh, Corinthians, I, always, I love this reference because uh, Corinth had lots of problems, and yet he was their Lord. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to the saints who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. It's true for all the saints everywhere. Uh, Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 5, emphasizing the unities that we all share in Christ. And he uh, wants to thank Jesus uh, Christ, our Lord, uh, who has enabled me. 
so he strengthened him. Uh, with the calling that Paul had came the enablement. Uh, he enabled me. Uh, we are what we are by the grace of God. Paul said, I am what I am by the, by the grace of God. And uh, he was, would say in 2 Corinthians, our sufficiency is of him. Uh, we are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. And so, who has enabled me, uh, he, he had a special calling, but it came with God's enablement. And then he says, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now, this is an interesting uh, part of the verse. And frankly, commentaries mostly talk around it, because what does it mean? Uh, counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Uh, when did he do this? When did God count him faithful, putting him into the ministry? You say, well, normally when we think about elders, you know, you have to meet certain qualifications and then you're put into the ministry. How did it work for Paul? Okay, that's true. He did. So was it after that time he spent with the Lord that the Lord then counted him faithful and put him into the ministry? That is one view. <laughs> well, that's the other view. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was it? Yeah, that's right. Ananias. Okay. And he'll tell you what, what to do, which he told him to get baptized. That's true. But who really uh, appointed uh, Paul as far as Saul, Paul, uh, who appointed him as far as his, his, his ministry? That's true. He was. He heard the gospel from Jesus Christ alone in Galatians chapter 1. Yes. That's, that's right, and how he would appear before kings and so forth. Jesus Christ told him that on the road to Damascus. I mean, at the time of his conversion, he really received his call to apostolic ministry as well. So, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. The question that I have is, you know, he talks about... He's enabled him, and he's going to go talk, uh, you know, as far as his conversion experience. Uh, that's why I lean towards this, because he goes on to talk about how he was before a blasphemer. So he's clearly talking about the time of his conversion in context, I think. And so uh, when he talks about uh, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, that becomes uh, the, the question. Let me grapple with this just a little bit with you. Uh, here in, uh, you know, Paul... Uh, says in Acts 21 or 23 1, he's talking to the council here, uh, Jewish leaders. Uh, Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Uh, so the question is okay, if uh, he received this special calling from the very beginning, uh, when did it happen? Well, Paul says, You know, I really had a good conscience. Now, there's a problem as we get to the next verse. But, you know, I think. Uh, uh, you know, he did live with a, in terms of his conscience. Now, conscience can be wrong. 
if it's got the wrong stuff that's being put into it. And yeah, Paul was, you know, living in his own mind according to a good conscience, but there were some problems here, as he will, will admit. Uh, here's uh, Kenneth West, Weist, rather. Uh, yeah, Weist. Uh, God saw that the fiery, zealous, intense Pharisee would be just as fiery, zealous, and intense in the proclamation of the gospel as he was in its persecution. When saving grace was operating in his being, God demonstrated confidence in Paul by putting him into the ministry. So, you know, it's true. I mean, God sees everything before anything, right? Yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, he definitely was a unique guy in, in just about every angle you could look at it. What we wrestle with is that, you know, because he counted me faithful, he put me into the ministry. Usually we would say we would rather understand it. Total grace, and he put me in, and it's true. He'll get to grace as we go along. But his opening statement is because he counted me uh, faithful, he put me into the ministry. Uh, well, uh, that's a little bit of a challenge. Uh, you know, he says, though, in Acts, uh, as he's before Agrippa, this is in Acts 26, uh, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So there was an element of obedience right from the very beginning. And he's talking about his conversion. He's recounting his conversion to King Agrippa. And he wasn't disobedient to it. But he, and he says it, what it was. He declared first to those in Damascus, Jerusalem, throughout the region of Judea, Judea and to the, then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. So he's referring back to that initial commission uh, from Jesus Christ here on the, on the road to Damascus here. So, um, yes, Albert? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Right. Right. Uh, I understand your your quandary. Yes, Levita. Oh yeah. Yeah. What we struggle with here is counted me faithful. How long does it take to be counted faithful? Well, again, I think he did receive the commission right from the very beginning. God knew how this is going to, where it's going to go. But uh, th- that's where we grapple with this. He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He did. I'm going to get to that. He absolutely did. Uh, his was definitely a lordship conversion. Yes, Kurt? Well, that's true. Well, all of that is true. Amen. 
we just grapple with the wording here a little bit because he says, uh, he enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So, so that's what, you know, all these commentators even are kind of grappling with. But absolutely. I mean, uh, and if Jesus wants to appoint someone an apostle and give him the commission from the very get-go, the Lord can do whatever the Lord wants to do here. And he did. Um, so all, all that's involved there as far as, and, and his response was obedience right from the very beginning, but it was because of the Lord's work in his life. I mean, all the, the glory always goes back to God for sure. It's all of grace. So uh, all of those things are, are true. Uh, but notice uh, he put me into the ministry. He's definitely recognizing that this was uh, God's initiative, Christ's initiative. Uh, Christ put him in the ministry. He was not a self-made man. He uh, didn't say, hey, you know, I'm signing up to be an apostle. Today. My, I, you know, that's, that's what I want to be. No, Christ chose this for him right from the very beginning of, of his ministry. Okay, any other thoughts there? Okay, let's, yes, Kurt. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, that's true. And in the final analysis, it's all grace. I mean, it wasn't like any of these people deserved it or were self-appointed. It's just the wording here kind of throws us just a little bit. Uh, how did God count him faithful, putting him into the ministry on that basis? Well, um, again, Christ sees all. Uh, his response was one of obedience from the, from the very get-go. Anyway, you know, yeah. Okay, yeah. Albert, you got something else? Okay, wait till we get there. All right, let's read verse 13. Who wants to read that? Verse 13. Yeah, okay, Albert. Albert. Yeah. Yeah, and he hasn't finished his thought yet from verse 12. Right. So he's... Right. Well, that's going to be his major point. I mean, he is in the ministry. You would never expect a guy like this to be put in the ministry. Certainly not from the very get-go, you know. Maybe after years of proving himself. <laughs> so... Well, and that's exactly where, where he's going. And that, that is his point here. Uh, Paul is building to the point saying, I am the worst of the worst of the worst. And yet, Christ put me into the ministry, saved me and put me into the ministry. So notice he says, although I was formerly a blasphemer. Uh, you know, this, uh, how he counted him faithful and all that, that's, that's what we've kind of been wrestling with. But that's almost, let's put that aside for right now. Uh, the, the clear point here is, um, although I was formerly a blasphemer, uh, which is the idea of being irreverent. Uh, you know, when you, when you uh, blaspheme, uh, you say bad things. You say irreverent things. And uh, he obviously uh, did so and encouraged others to do so. In Acts uh, 26, he says, 
I punished them often in every synagogue, compelled them to blaspheme. The believers, being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them to foreign cities. So he was not only content to be a blasphemer himself, he was encouraging others to blaspheme, you know, compelling them to do so. Uh, not, a, not a pleasant guy, a persecutor. I mean, he's ruthless. He's hunting down these Christians. Uh, we find in Acts chapter 22, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. I mean, it makes it very clear. I mean, these people, he's, he's hunting them down to death. I mean, it was not a pretty picture. And then he says, an insolent man, which is the idea of harsh, abusive, mean, uh, cruel, uh, that, that idea. And so, um, not, uh, not pleasant at all. Uh, William MacDonald, uh, well, I guess I've got another slide here. Uh, he's, he says, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I mean, he, he put it all on the line to try to wipe out God's people here. And then uh, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I don't know that he ever completely really quite got over this, what, what he did to, to the church. And he, he saw himself in a very humble light uh, because of that. But again, uh, very harsh. And uh, here's uh, William MacDonald. It says, although it is not as obvious from the English words, there are an ascending scale of wickedness in the three words, blasphemer, persecutor, insolent. Uh, the first sin is a matter of words only. The second describes suffering inflicted on others for their religious beliefs. The third includes the idea of cruelty and abuse. So there's kind of an intensity that builds here in terms of what uh, Paul was previously all about. But he says, but I obtained mercy, uh, not because I was faithful, right? <laughs> no, uh, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Uh, mercy is the idea of pity or compassion on those that are undeserving, uh, those that are really uh, guilty of a self-inflicted misery, and yet uh, mercy comes along and comes to the aid of such a person uh, who really deserves punishment. Uh, but he says, it's interesting what he says here, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Uh, does he give himself a little excuse here? <laughs> I don't think so either. But it is interesting. He does say he did receive mercy because he did it ignorantly. He did it ignorantly in unbelief. And uh, you could say, well, uh, unbelievers is always ignorance. Well, I, I don't know if that's really true. I think there is a willful unbelief that defies ignorance uh, David Gazik says here, ignorance and unbelief never excuse sin, but they do invite God's mercy. Because sin and ignorance and unbelief makes one less guilty than the person who sins knowingly. And uh, I'm going to drive that point home just a little bit because I do think uh, there, there, are, there are degrees of sin. There, there are degrees of, of, you know, willful rejection. In the Old Testament, in Numbers, the priest shall make an atonement for the person who sins unintentionally. So there was unintentional sin. But the person who does anything presumptuously, that's on purpose, uh, shall be cut off from among his people. So I'm, all I'm doing there is showing there is a difference between sinning ignorantly and sinning with presumption. And uh, we see that even in the, in the Old Testament there. Well, my question here is how could Paul possibly uh, reject 
the personal appearance of Jesus Christ when in his glorified form. Wasn't that an automatic conversion? Could anybody possibly reject in that situation? (laughs) One would think not. But I do think there is an example in the Bible where not totally a parallel, but pretty close. And that is Balaam in the Old Testament. Uh, Balaam was a prophet who knew full well the truth of God. And he is given as a a classic uh, rebel, false teacher in the New Testament. But notice what he himself says in Numbers 24. He took up the oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, uh, the the utterance of the man whose eyes are are opened. The utterance of him who hears the words of God, sees the, the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. All the while he's trying to undermine the people of God, the will of God, the revelation of God, uh, you know, he, for money. <laughs> he, really, he really is a very wicked man. As if we would compare Scripture with Scripture, you see, he is really one of those that, that goes to hell. But he saw it with his eyes wide open. So what I'm saying here is I think, uh, you know, uh, Paul potentially could have rejected just like Balaam rejected with his eyes wide open. Now, he didn't. uh, You know, he he was obedient, as as we find. But in terms of uh, sinning ignorantly in unbelief, I think uh, there is such a thing as willful sin. I think we read about this in Hebrews. If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge, this is after after you have the truth. Uh, knowledge of the truth is shorthand for the gospel often in the New Testament. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. So this is, uh, this is a whole other level, I think, this, this willful rejection of, of the truth after, after you know the truth. Peter talks about this as well. Second uh, Peter chapter 2. Uh, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so, so they have knowledge. They're again entangled in the, and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it to turn from the holy commandment, which is the gospel in this case, delivered to them. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it's worse if you know and you willfully... Paul said, I didn't know. I was ignorant. I was... Uh, and because of this ignorance... Uh, uh, I, I received mercy, is what he is saying. Uh, let's see. I've got another slide or so here. Uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown, ignorance does not in and itself deserve pardon, but is less culpable because of unbelief than pride and willful hardening of oneself against the truth. Uh, I see this even from the cross where Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, you know, uh, there, there, is, there is mercy uh, with, with ignorance. Yes, Albert? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, okay, yeah, Caleb? Well, yeah, there's a lot of parallels there in terms of they did see the mighty hand of God. I mean, the miracles in the Exodus are, are the premier event uh, in the Old Testament as far as God revealing himself. 
So huge culpability uh, there. Uh, we go to the New Testament with Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, doing huge culpability, blaspheming against the Spirit, rejecting that, which Christ said is unforgivable. So, I mean, um, yeah, there are some other examples. Um, you know, Balaam's not the only one. Um, so, yeah. You got it? Okay. All right. Well, he was sincere, and I think that's, that's very true. That's how you could say I've lived with a good conscience. I mean, he was following his conscience. I mean, he was saying, well, and sincerely trying to stamp out a new cult, as he saw it, that's trying to be raised up against the, the faith uh, of the Jews. And so I, I think he was totally sincere. Yeah, absolutely. But he was ignorant. You know, he was ignorant. It's a little different than, you know, the, the Pharisees who are blaspheming or the Sadducees who are blaspheming the Spirit, you know. There is no excuse there whatsoever. But he, there was some ignorance on his part here. And he's saying that made, that made a difference. All right. Anything else? Okay. I got a couple more slides here just for the fun of it, right? Uh, this is an interesting statement from uh, Ellicott's commentary. This is one of the passages which throws a gleam of light we're always happy for that. On some of the hard questions which perplex us when we meditate on the principles of the final judgment. Very little is told us as to the doom of those who have not heard. You know, that's true. We often re- what about those who have not? Well, we know without Christ, without the gospel, you know, that's why we need to tell them. But, but it's true. We don't really have a, a lot uh, that is told us. Uh, or else have failed to understand the message of Christ. Still, from even such scanty teaching as is contained in the words we are now considering, uh, we gather that there is an ignorance which at least greatly modifies the guilt of unbelief. Uh, well, that's an interesting statement. I think, I think it's true. I think you, could, you can make that argument there. Um, one more slide here. To know is to be accountable. I definitely see that. Uh, we are responsible for the light that is given to us. Apostasy is knowing the truth full well and turning away from it. This is the, this is the sin described, I believe, in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, from which it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. This level of hardening is a tragic and irreversible thing, hence the strong warnings in the book of Hebrews not to harden your heart. Uh, again, uh, once you know the truth, to turn from that. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10 is a, a very serious thing. Another thing to note here is many believe that Paul is contrasting himself with these false teachers on the scene who do know the truth and who now seem to be turning away from the truth. And uh, ESV brings this out. When Paul so opposed Christ, he had not yet professed faith. These men, the false teachers on the scene, profess to follow Christ and still live in an evil manner. In so doing, they are coming dangerously close to being cut off from the possibility of God's mercy. Uh, that, in context, uh, would seem to make sense in terms of what he's been talking about. Okay, uh, anything else before we go on to verse 14? All right, let's press on. Somebody want to read verse 14 for us? Yes, Jeff.
Amen. So again, in light of our previous conversation, clearly the grace of God's behind this whole thing. Uh, the grace of our Lord, the unmerited favor of God. This is, this is what's driving the whole thing. That's what's mentioned first, and everything flows out of that. In fact, he coins a word here, uh, which is translated with two words, exceedingly abundant. It's like it was super abounding, over the top. And, and I really think this is what Paul has in mind as he's, as he's thinking about the gospel. Uh, when it comes to grace... The foremost thing in Paul's mind is the gospel. In, this, in, in his mind, this superabundant grace connects to Christ Jesus coming to save sinners, of whom he was chief, as seen in the ne- very next verse. For Paul, the gospel above all was the gospel of grace. He defines grace, the grace of God, in terms of the death of Christ in Galatians. Uh, grace is broader than the cross, but it is foremost, and in context, I think, uppermost in, in Paul's mind. So um, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant, But then he says here, uh, with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And, uh, you know, the the issue here was uh, the faith and the love, is that um, the result or is that uh, his response? Is this the result of the grace of God or is it in response to the grace of God? Well, the answer probably might be yes. Right? We could answer that question with yes again. Uh, William MacDonald, I think, uh, uh, properly says, it could, of course, mean that just as grace came from the Lord, so faith and love found their origin in him. Uh, but the meaning seems to be clear if we understand that God's grace was not refused by Paul, but that he responded by trusting the Lord Jesus and by loving this blessed one whom he had formerly hated. So, uh, yeah, I tend to agree with uh, MacDonald there. But notice... Uh, the grace uh, brought in faith and love, which are really kind of closely conjoined here, very closely related, uh, which are in Christ Jesus. The object of our faith is, is Christ Jesus. I really think when he brings faith and love together, he's really kind of describing the nature of a, of a saving faith, uh, the results from the grace of God received. Um, Paul describes the nature of a saving faith response, which uh, is when grace is received, you know how he says to the Corinthians, receive not the grace of God in vain, uh, is received with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Uh, he is contrasting his former ignorant unbelief with faith and love, which he now has in Jesus, which is all because of the grace of God at work in his life. Galatians 5, 6 uh, circumcision, it's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. That doesn't avail anything. But faith working through love. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed, he says in 1 Corinthians 16. So uh, I really believe that uh, when you have true faith, there is going to be a love for the Lord. Uh, Faith is first, mentioned first. Uh, It issues in love. And behind it all is, is the grace of God. He uses the same language, by the way, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So he likes to combine faith and love uh, to Christ Jesus uh, very closely. All right, anything else before we go on to verse 15? I'm moving along here. I have to now, but... All right, uh, let's read verse 15. Who wants to read that for us? Caleb? Verse 15.
Okay. Paul lacks self-esteem. We all know it. Right? No, I don't think so. I don't think that was his issue. But uh, he says this is a faithful saying, a proverbial statement. This uh, idea of a faithful saying is found five times in the pastoral epistles, uh, emphasizing a, a kind of a key component of the faith. Uh, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Uh, nobody can deny this, reject this. Uh, here it is, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, most believe this is probably a takeoff of where we have in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save uh, that which was lost, where Christ said that there. Uh, this was Christ's mission. This is why he came into the world, uh, to, save, to save sinners. Notice it doesn't say he came to save saints, right? You know why? Well, there are none to start with, and, and if there was, saints wouldn't need to be saved. They're already saved, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, Christ said, I am not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Uh, he came to save sinners. And uh, he did this by way of his cross work. It is finished. I mean, this is, a, uh, this is why he came, uh, to, to save sinners. And, of course, there's really kind of two parts. Uh, that, you know, Christ came to save sinners, uh, make them savable, if you will. But people do have to respond to Christ. They have to, they have to believe. I mean, we see the, you know, this in Romans 5, 8. Uh, God demonstrates his love toward us and thought, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, he didn't wait for us to be uh, what we ought to be. He died for us while we were sinners. Also in 4, uh, four and 5, uh, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Who, who does he justify? The ungodly. Uh, what state are we in when we are justified? Now, the Roman Catholic Church wants to teach that you need to kind of be growing in sanctification and becoming, you know, what you ought to be. And on that basis, you know, uh, God gives you more grace and so forth. But really, that's backwards. Uh, he justifies the ungodly. You say, well, I think I get, I'll be godly and then he'll justify me. No, no, no. He justifies the ungodly. On what basis? Well, on the basis of what Christ did. But how about on the human side of things? How? What's the verse say? Faith. Yeah. Uh, he justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. So, uh, yeah, you're ungodly, and in that, at the second you uh, put your faith in him, you, you transfer from being ungodly to now to the, the godly side of the ledger. But uh, imputed righteousness is given to you. But, uh, yeah, Christ came into the world to save sinners, and he says, of whom I am chief. Um, chief, what's that mean? Your, your translation said it. The worst, or the foremost. Uh, I'm the worst of, of all the sinners, Christ came to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. Wow, uh, that is quite a statement. Um, if you want to be saved, you've got to realize you're a sinner, because Christ came to save sinners. That's where everything starts. Yes, Tiffany?
Well, I would say there, there is none without excuse. Uh, what I'm really uh, saying is, you know, like we talk about, it's true. I do believe that anyone without Christ goes to hell, period. If you've never heard of Christ or not, I mean, you must be born again. Uh, without Christ, he who has a son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. I mean, go on and on. So I do believe anyone without Christ is lost. But I do think, like in Luke 12, Christ talks about the one who has knowledge will be beaten with many stripes. And the one who didn't know will be beaten with few stripes. So I think there are degrees of punishment corresponding to the light that you have uh, to the, and that which you've rejected. But yeah, I do think uh, my theology is without Christ, there is no salvation. That's why it's, it's so important to tell people, uh, to get the message to them. So yeah, you're right. Romans 1.20, uh, none are without excuse. Uh, natural revelation is enough to condemn you to hell for, for all eternity. I think that's true. That's right. Yeah, on and on. Absolutely. Uh, there is no salvation outside of Christ. I mean, I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do believe there, there is a condition of accountability, as I like to call it. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes a 40-year-old might not know any more than a six-month-old, you know, depending on what the situation is. So, uh, but yeah, I think what you are responsible for is the knowledge of the truth. And God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If they don't come to the knowledge of the truth, they're not saved. We could build a whole theological case why I think babies, for example, are saved. I don't think, you know, uh, you know, everyone at the final judgment is judged according to their own works. Well, what if you die in the womb? Did you have works in there? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, you go back to Isaiah, before the child shall know uh, the difference between, uh, to choose between evil and, and good, and, and you, you build a case here. Uh, so I, I definitely am of the conviction that those before the age of account, the condition of accountability are saved. Yeah, I, I believe that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there are, there are, there are people that don't think that. Uh, they, they have a different view, but, you know, we can't all be right. <laughs> I'm just kidding on that, but <laughs> yes, Levita. Uh, that is a great question, and one that is not specifically addressed. <laughs> uh, you know what I, I don't know, but I tend to think, uh, you know, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, did they bring their children with them? The children came with them. What about those poor Egyptian kids? They, were, they hadn't reached the age of accountability either. Well, they, were, they, they didn't go. You know, there are some special blessings, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, as far as being, you know, in, in relationship, uh, the children are sanctified by the believing partner and so forth. Even the unbelieving partner receives some blessings because of that, for sure. But uh, we're not really, it doesn't really tell us exactly. So I do want to... Mm -hmm. It's a good question. I can't answer definitively because the Bible doesn't say definitively. But, um, you know, it might be interesting. Like, what if you got an unsaved pregnant woman? Uh, you know, 
We do know that during the tribulation, there will be those who are with child. And he says, you know, pray that your flight, you know, be not on the Sabbath. And, and, but that's a little later in the tribulation. Would have, they had, you know, time to get, you know, this is a, the middle of the tribulation period, I think, when he's describing there. Well, it's three and a half years in. Uh, you know, they weren't carrying that baby for three and a half years. Anyway, you get into all this stuff. <laughs> Uh, the bottom line is we are not specifically told, but, you know, it's just kind of hard for me to believe that the parents are being raptured and those kids are just left there. Uh, but, but again, that's, that's me. Um, I don't have a verse with great clarity. Yes, Kate, you got a verse? Wow. <laughs> Well, how old a child? Yeah, exactly. It's a general principle. Yeah, no, no, it's good. It's good. You're right. It's a general principle, as the wisdom principles often are. Um, you know, I could say, hey, even a little six-month-old can, you know, act up. And, you know, it's like, you, should, you know, I don't want you doing this, and yet you're crying at three in the morning. <laughs> even that child is known by his ways, that little sinner. <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't know. You know, we get into complicated things here where only God has all the answers here. Um, and whatever it is, it'll be right. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? He will. So we have to sometimes leave it there. But All right. Oh, my goodness. Let's finish quickly here. Uh, we got to finish this. I'm just going to do verse 16. Somebody want to read that? Albert, why don't you read that for us? Okay, it's in the first chapter there. Verse 16. Yes. Caleb, you want to read it for us? But here's why I was treated with mercy, so that in me, as the worst, Christ Jesus could demonstrate his utmost patience as an example for those who are going to believe in him for eternal life. This is most interesting verse. I wish we had more time to discuss it. We'll take just a minute or two here. But, um, <clears throat> you know, he says, For this reason I obtained mercy, then in me first or the one who is foremost, uh, the worst sinner of all, God uses an, an example of how he saves people. And the idea here is that uh, in me, who was the, the foremost or the first, Jesus Christ might show all his patience. His patience is seen in how he dealt with uh, Saul. You know, Saul knew a lot about Jesus, I think. And, and you know, there was a lot of background here. And yet God was very, very patient with him. But he's the pattern. He, he's the illustration. He's the example uh, of how God saves the worst of sinners and makes them the best of Christians, as in the case uh, of Paul, who are going to believe on him uh, for everlasting life. So uh, this is what Paul did. He believed on him, and, and then he received everlasting life. And he's a pattern uh, of, you say, well, how bad, you know, how bad a sinner does, uh, does Christ save? Well, he can save the worst. He did, with, he did with Paul. That's the emphasis here. He's, it just comes on the heels of saying, I am chief. I am the worst of all sinners. And I am the pattern of, of who can be saved here. Uh, the worst of all sinners who believe on him. Anybody can be saved if they come to Christ. The invitation, you know, the last invitation in the Bible, whosoever will. Uh, so if you desire and you come, you can be saved. Christ invites, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, 
So anyone can be saved is what I see Paul saying. He says, if the chief of sinners can be saved, anybody can be saved if they will believe. That's the condition here as we see in verse 16. All right, anything else? We had a lot to go through in verse 16, but we don't have time to do it. But anyway, that's life. Yes, Caleb. Sure. Absolutely. Amen. All right. Anyone else? Okay. Let's share some prayer items here. Yes? You know what? I, I, I probably have to. <laughs> I think we'll pick up on that verse next week a little bit there. Yeah. Anybody need a prayer sheet? Everybody?